Isaiah chapter 22. It's our sermon text for this morning, Isaiah 22. We have been using the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Uh, to remind ourselves of uh, the story of Christ coming to earth. And we have found that in the various verses of that Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that these are references to the prophet Isaiah. And so this morning we consider Jesus being the key of David, and we find a reference to that in Isaiah chapter 22. And all we really need to know in terms of background is we're dealing with Two men here, Shebna and Eliakim. Uh, Shebna has disobeyed God. He's, he's been bad with sort of his responsibilities in the palace. And so God is going to remove him and bring someone after him named Eliakim. This is around the time of King Hezekiah of Judah. So Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 25. God's holy word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. This is what the Lord, the the Lord Almighty, says. Go, say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and you will be ousted from your position. In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars." And that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. So today is the day where we finally get to... Those two very famous Christmas characters, the two Christmas characters that everyone always wants to play in the Sunday School Christmas program, Shebna and Eliakim from King Hezekiah's day in Judah. Right? Maybe that's not true. But when we look here in Isaiah 22, there are all kinds of fascinating connections to Christmas. We've been considering... This Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 
The verse we're considering, the stanza we're considering today regarding the key of David says this, O come thou Lord of David's key, the, the gate of heaven unfolds to thee. Make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. A key, a gate, a road, and a way. What does a key do? A key opens something, a gate or a door leading to somewhere. And you need that key in order for something to be opened, whether it be a gate or a door. What we find as we consider this passage, as we consider the story of God sending his son to earth to live and to die for his people, as we consider all of that, what we see is that Jesus Christ has been given the key of David. Indeed, Jesus Christ is himself the key of David. Thus, he is the one who opens heaven. He opens the door to heaven. He and no one else. Jesus is also the one who shuts the door to eternal condemnation. He does this because he is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly righteous in the way that uh, he can speak for all those whom he represents. He is like a firm peg which is driven into the wall and he can sustain uh, whatever weight is hung on him. He is that powerful and that righteous. So the call upon us this morning, brothers and sisters, as we take a couple of days to perhaps celebrate with family, and the call upon us in this hour is to pause and to consider Jesus and consider whether or not we would make room in our hearts to recognize him, to revere him, and to respond to him. We spoke of that last week when we talked about the fear of the Lord, remember? Fear of the Lord is about recognizing and revering and responding to God. Will we do that in regards to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our King? The story that begins at Christmas is not only the greatest story that is ever told, it is a story that could not be improved. For God wove all of these things together in order to accomplish the greatest result of His glory. He knew what He was doing in His perfect wisdom. Not only the greatest story ever told but a story that could not be improved. So, we'll consider these three figures, Shebna, Eliakim, and how they relate to Jesus. Who is Shebna? What does he do? And how does that relate to Christmas? We don't really know who Shebna is. Uh, He is not called the son of of anyone. And in the book of Isaiah, usually, the prophet takes care to tell us, this person is the son of so-and-so. So that immediately makes us suspicious of this steward, Shebna. We don't know where he comes from. Perhaps he comes from somewhere outside of the boundaries of Israel. And that's not necessarily a bad thing inherently. But at that time and place, with God's people situated in Israel, people coming from outside of the boundaries could perhaps pose an existential threat to them. And so if someone comes from, say, Egypt or somewhere like that, we immediately are suspicious of them. This, of course, does not mean that God has anything to say about people who come from outside. All of us who are not of Jewish descent need to thank the Lord for that, that forgiveness and redemption has been declared throughout all of the world. But we don't know who Shebna is, but we know what he does. It says that Shebna is in charge of the palace. This was a, an officer position that at least dates back to the time of King Solomon. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 4. 
And so Shebna occupies a position of great significance. We might think of him almost like a chief of staff, for instance. A chief of staff who, uh, you know, we have a lot of stories that are written nowadays about people that are pulling the strings behind the great leader. This is almost the way that we could think about Shebna, behind the king, but perhaps pulling on a lot of the strings. The man behind the man, he is the one perhaps who is calling the shots. How much power he has, we really see in the person who succeeds him. And Shebna, after, after him comes Eliakim. Look in verse 21, Eliakim, the one who will come after him, will be given authority. He will be given vestments and robes that will show the kind of authority that he has, the special status that he has. He is even called a father to Jerusalem, thereby being a provider and protector to the nation. And finally, we see that he is given the key to the house of David. We will explore what that means in just a little bit. So, back to Shebna. What is he expected to do and how does it go for him? Well, in some way, he leads and directs the affairs of Judah, right? He is sort of this chief of staff kind of figure. Does he execute these responsibilities with faithfulness? Well, the clear answer is no, right? No, he has not been faithful in executing his duties and responsibilities. We read of this judgment that's to come upon him, and it sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? He is to be hurled away. This language that you don't really encounter that often in the Bible, tied up like a ball and thrown. I don't know, perhaps, if you've ever been maybe playing basketball on a, a driveway that has a downwards incline. And if that ball ever sort of scoots away from the people that are playing, and if it starts going down that driveway, it's going to roll for a pretty long time. And that's kind of the image here. A a ball that is thrown into a vast country with nothing that stands uh, in in its way. He he has brought upon himself the judgment of God. We read about it in verse 19. He is going to be completely removed. So what does this have to do with Jesus? And what does it have to do with Jesus? Christmas. Well, Shebna and his failure point us to the one who will come after him. There is one who will come after him, and that is one of the things that Shebna primarily does. This is a story, a cycle that we see in Scripture, isn't it? Someone comes and, and fails at what God has told them to do. And so after them, God raises up someone who will be faithful. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of this would be King Saul in 1 Samuel. We've been going through 1 Samuel and Ruth Society, so you can ask the ladies afterwards, they'll vouch for me. 1 Samuel is the unrighteousness of Saul shows you how much he needs to be removed from the throne. And the righteousness of David shows you how much he deserves to be king. Saul has failed, he needs to be removed. God will raise up someone else. And really, that harkens back to the ultimate story of all of Scripture, doesn't it? The first man, he failed, Adam, and it paves the way, shows the need for a second Adam, which is what Jesus is called, a second Adam, the last Adam, the one who comes in the wake of the first man's failure. Shebna is, is in a way, representative of Israel at that time. Israel was staring into the face of disaster. Coming disaster and judgment, really the the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom to whom uh, Isaiah is prophesying. Judgment is coming upon them, and God is calling them to repent. 
So we read right before our passage this morning in Isaiah 22. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, in verse 12. For baldness and wearing sackcloth. God's call upon his people was, return to me. Be sorry for your sin. Repent of all that you've done. Come back and return to me. But what does Israel do? What does Judah do? Do they repent? No. Behold, it says, joy and gladness. Not a good joy and gladness, but a superficial joy and gladness. Killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. They were having a party in the face of their coming judgment. They were not sorry for their sins. Shebna, in the wake of all of this, what is he doing? He's concerned about his own glory, his own fame. He has this obsession, it seems, with uh, building a large tomb for himself cutting it out of the rock, creating a large tomb that people would know who he is after he leaves uh, this life. So those things are instructive for us as we think about Christmas. Christmas is telling us answers to ultimate questions. It's telling us the truth about ultimate realities. It is appointed for all men once to die and after that to face judgment. The answer to what happens there And how we can experience blessedness in all of that is told to us in the story of Christmas. Here we see Judah and Shebna as representative of Judah ignoring the fact that they have a God, that they have a king, that they will face judgment, representative of the nation there. At Christmas time, what are we made to believe? What is it it all about? What's it all about? Well, in its worst moments, it's about getting stuff, right? And perhaps culturally we might say at its better moments it's about goodwill towards men, which is a wonderful thing. But what does scripture mean? What does scripture mean when it talks of goodwill towards men? When the angels announce the coming of the Savior, when the angels announce the coming of Christ the King, what did they say about the goodwill towards men that God meant? We read, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same region shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were sore afraid. The angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. A Savior. Why is it glad tidings of great joy? Because this Christ is a Savior. Why is there peace on earth? Not because at the Christmas story it just sort of indiscriminately goes to every corner of the earth and no other qualifications. No. Christ is the peace on earth. Because he is a savior. Because he will save people from their sins. That's why. That's what God means when we we speak of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. See, Christmas, I've mentioned this a couple times, Christmas tells us about the wrath of God. Which sounds, it's not a fun thing to hear about when we're celebrating holidays. But Christ comes to earth, he is the peace Of the world because he comes not to immediately execute the wrath of God, he comes to bear the wrath of God in himself. That's why these are glad tidings of great joy. The the dream of Shebna cost him everything. He is 
He is a dark reminder, isn't it? Isn't he? He's a dark reminder of those who would ignore, those who would ignore ultimate realities, those who would ignore the fact that we have a God, those who would ignore the fact that human beings are accountable to that God. But it's also a joyous reminder of Calvary, that as we see ourselves, as we see our own sinful tendencies in the patterns of Shebna, tending to block away all of those ultimate things that we tend not to want to think about all of the time, as we see ourselves in Shebna, we remember that God was not silent about human sinfulness. God was not silent about human sinfulness. That's what Christmas reminds us of. He sent his son to bear the wrath for us. So are we living like Shebna, or are we living for the glory of God? Is Shebna, as someone who lived in the palace, was made to, to be one who would facilitate creating a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, people given in love and devotion to God, but he was concerned about himself. Leaders in the church need to keep this in mind, don't they? Is the church becoming a place that is facilitating, helping by God's grace to create worshipers of the true God, training them to live in godliness and righteousness, putting aside the works of darkness, or are leaders of the church concerned about their own name, their own glory, their own fame? They need to be concerned about God and his work. Shebna makes way for this figure after him, Eliakim. They're an absolute contrast, aren't they? There's unrighteousness with Shebna. We read about uh, Eliakim and his righteousness. He seemingly is a representative figure who speaks for all of those around, around him, even those who are said to be of lesser value. Right? We read of these, these lower vessels. He seems to speak for them. In verse 21, we read that he is a father to the house of Judah, so he protects and provides. He is father. He is a seat of honor. In verse 23, the glory of his family will hang on him. In verse 24, the picture there is a firm nail which is driven into the wall and you can, you can hang a lot from that nail. It can sustain and support a lot of weight. Eliakim is a righteous leader and a representative. His name means something. Remember in, in, when we, th- we think of Jesus and particularly the book of Isaiah, the names he has given mean something. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His name itself, Yeshua, means God saves, right? This name, Eliakim, means God raises up. God will raise up. Eliakim means God raises up. He is one whom God will raise up in the wake of human failure. The grace of God is greater than human failure. That's behind everything about the story of Christmas. Jesus coming to earth is because the grace of God is greater than human failure. He, God, can bring honor and salvation out of destruction and sin and death and self-exaltation. God alone, God alone saves. God alone saves, and we glorify him because of it. Righteous Eliakim is given the key to the house of David. This means he can open and shut as he pleases. You could imagine with me, just for a minute, a a director of a museum, and she has the only key to, to the museum, right? And so you could exist sort of two extremities in how you will exercise the authority of that key. Let's say she opens the museum and, and keeps it open 24-7, the museum staff is going to say, what are you doing? People are going to sneak in at night and they're going to take all these valuable artifacts. But it stops with her. She alone has the key. Let's say the other extremity, she never opens it 
she never opens this museum, people are going to say, well, shouldn't, shouldn't you open it up so that people can go in and at least see all of the, the beautiful things that this museum has to offer? The point is, the buck stops with her. The authority is, the one, is with the one who has the key. So Eliakim is given the key to the house of David. How does that propel us forward to how we understand Jesus being called the key of David in our carol, O come, O come, Emmanuel? Well, we see that Eliakim will not eternally have this authority. Yes, he is a righteous man, but he is not perfectly and eternally righteous, is he? Look at verse 25. Sort of this mysterious end to the prophecy. The peg driven into the firm place will give way. Sort of out of nowhere, Eliakim is going to fall off. It will be sheared off and will fall. The load hanging on it will be cut down. Many people believe that Eliakim's downfall. We read about him in Second Chronicles. Uh, many believe that eventually what did him in was the sin of nepotism. He was trying to uh, make way for one of his relatives to sort of succeed him in his position. And that person to come after him was not nearly as righteous. Whether or not that's true, we're not exactly sure. But what we know is that the blessing of Eliakim's righteousness is not eternal. Because it's imperfect. And human righteousness is never enough. Throughout all of Scripture, anyone who comes, even if they're portrayed to us as somewhat righteous, read about righteous Noah, righteous Abraham, but all of that human righteousness is never enough. It's never enough. Christ is said to be our righteousness. And when we say that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, do we understand why that is so important? And do we understand what it is that's communicated to us in that glorious truth? And Christ is our righteousness. Really, ultimately, what it means, isn't it, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus opens heaven for us with his righteousness. That is how heaven is opened, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our catechism reminds us of this, that the mediator, the savior, the one who cleanses us from our sin must be righteous. He must be a truly righteous man. But even more than that, he must be true God. We learn that during his whole life on earth, Jesus suffered. That during his whole life on earth, he suffered. Why? It wasn't just so that the death that he died would cleanse us, which that's true and that's beautiful and glorious. But it's that the life that he lived would speak for us. The life that Jesus lived would speak for us. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for instance, the Apostle Paul says, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus becomes all of those things for us. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says again, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Made righteous by Christ's obedience the second Adam. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as loss in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, everything else I count as rubbish in order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Looking to Christ, understanding who he is, what he has done, understanding the truth of the gospel message, abandoning everything else in yourself, and trusting in him, resting in him. That's what saving faith is, trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, knowing that outside of him there is no hope for salvation, and in him you find everything that you need for salvation. My hero from afar, mentor, knowing him only through what he's written on, on uh, paper, American theologian J. Gresham Machen was within hours of his death. He wires his good friend John Murray, and what does he say? It's the last thing he'll ever say to his friend. He says, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. The life that he lived, which speaks for us, opens the gates of heaven. That's why, that's why he is a wonderful savior. O come thou Lord of David's key, the gate of heaven unfolds to thee, make safe for us the heavenward road, and bar the way to death's abode. See, in Christ, the gates of heaven open, the way to eternal condemnation, the way to hell is closed off. The righteousness of Christ gives him the authority to open and shut the doors to the kingdom. We read in Revelation chapter 3, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, speaking of Jesus, of course, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The righteousness of Christ gives him that authority to open and shut. The authority is given to Christ in his resurrection because of the life he lived, because of the death he died. We read in Revelation 1, he is the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. We read in the book of Hebrews that, God, that Jesus presents his work before the Father, being scrutinized on our behalf, presents his work before the Father. The Father accepts his work. Without that happening, we are not getting into heaven. Without that happening, we are not enjoying the blessings of eternal life. It speaks for us. We are not enjoying the love, the joy, the peace of being the children of God without Jesus presenting his work before the Father. So that which belongs to Jesus, which he has earned the right to have, belongs to those who are his by faith. If the righteousness of Christ is counted as yours by faith, then you are already entitled to that same reward that Jesus has earned through his righteousness. In the book of 1 Peter, the apostle says that the inheritance that you have in Christ is, is unperishing, undefiled. It's kept in heaven for you. Never to be touched, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And so, because sin and death no longer hold sway over Christ, then it no longer has dominion over, his, over those who are his by faith. He bars the way to death's abode. Ephesians 4 says, when Jesus ascended on high, it was captivity itself that he made captive through his death. Christ is the key of David. Because he is truly righteous, he is the only one who can open the gates of heaven for his own. Because his salvation is perfect, he is the only one who can shut the door to eternal condemnation. But because of that authority that he's been given, he shuts off all other possible paths to salvation. It's not your works. It's not other faith systems. Not every road on this earth leads, leads to God. Jesus says, I am the way. So all people are commanded to cling to this Savior. Have we made room in our hearts this year for him, 
Do we recognize him? Do we revere him? Do, will we respond to him? Are our hearts filled with love for this Savior and what he does for us? Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that he gives the keys of the kingdom to the church, which means that the church can go throughout all of the world and proclaim this message that Jesus and he alone opens the gates to heaven. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, these are the things we must treasure and speak of every Lord's Day. Not once a year, every Lord's Day and every day. Live in light of all of those things. Christ, our Savior, our Lord and King, born to live for us, born to die for us, born so that he might win heaven for all those who trust in him. He is the key of David. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the truth of your gospel message. We are so thankful that we are gathered here today to to worship you for it. We pray that you would allow these, these truths from your word, from your scripture, to sink into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would apply them and that they would find root that they would grow, that they would abound in love and faith and joy and hope. And, and Father, we, we ask that you would give us courage to be your people in the world, to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would be a light, that we would be salt. Father, that we would give you all of the glory, that we would love one another the way that you have loved us, forgiving each other, deferring to one another's interests, seeking out new ways to show forth the blessing of God that comes through Christ our Savior. Pray all these things in his name. Amen. We close this morning, brothers and sisters, by singing number two.